times, people make things a lot more difficult than what they really are. More difficult in the sense of making the simple complex, and more difficult in the sense of making that which is rather easy, hard, requiring more work than it should. The Jewish leaders in the New Testament were making salvation more difficult than it really was. In our passage this morning, there are a series of Old Testament citations to demonstrate that the Jewish leaders had made being saved much more difficult than it really was. So our theme this morning is that salvation is not hard or difficult, but rather is readily available to all. Salvation is not hard or difficult, but is readily available to all. As we look at this passage, I have already spoken on Romans 10, 1 to 5 a few weeks ago in some detail. But we're going to go back and do a quick review to see how this fits in to the uh, complete context of making that which is simple more difficult than it needs to be. So the first thing we want to understand is that many Jewish people stood in need of salvation because they made being saved much more difficult than it really was. Many Jewish people stood in need of salvation because they made being saved more difficult than it really is. The fact that many Jewish people stood in need of salvation is seen in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, the prayer of the Apostle Paul. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So Paul is praying for their salvation. Obviously, that means that they stood in need of salvation. As I have already preached on this, it's, it's tough to overlook some of these things and just move on, but I would point out to you that here uh, is a great portion of Scripture that teaches us the appropriateness of praying for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is not only our duty and obligation, it's all, also our privilege and joy to be able to pray for the salvation of the lost. Secondly, we find that uh, the Jewish people uh, stand in need of salvation. Why? Well, it's certainly not because they're irreligious, verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Here are people that are sold out. They are involved in many religious practices. They pray, they read the scriptures, uh, they try to do good. However, though very committed to their religious practice, their zeal is misplaced, according to the end of verse 2, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal, but not in keeping with knowledge or what the Word of God says. So what knowledge did they lack? Well, they didn't understand concerning the nature of the righteousness that God required for salvation. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. That ignorance was to the degree of God's righteousness, how holy God is, and how righteous his standard is, meaning that one has to be absolutely perfect in order to be saved, and also ignorant of the righteousness which he provides through the Lord Jesus Christ. They tried to become acceptable to God by making themselves righteous through obedience to God's moral law. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. So they were trying to make themselves righteous by their own 
good deeds. And that, of course, is not going to result in salvation. And so they had this zeal, but not according to knowledge, because they were trying to work for their salvation. They were trying to present themselves righteous on their own merits, on their own standing. And so they failed by not appropriating the righteousness that God gives through faith. Verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, meaning the righteousness that God gives through Jesus Christ. They, they wouldn't submit to, they, they rejected that righteousness. They rejected God's standard. They wanted to present themselves righteous on their own merits. So what's the application? Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is not the end of the law in general, but rather one who places faith in Christ is no longer seeking to make themselves righteous by keeping God's law. Uh, that use of the God's law is no longer appropriate. In fact, never was. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin. It was not to make us righteous or holy by obeying the law. So why do we need to understand that many Jewish people stood in need of salvation? Well, first, so that we do not fail in our own understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not teach salvation by works any more than the New Testament teaches salvation by works. But also, why do we need to understand that many Jewish people stood in need of salvation? So we might understand that salvation requires more than religious fervor and commitment. We live in a day and age that says that uh, all, leads, all roads lead to Rome and all faiths result in salvation. That all one has to do is be committed. All one has to do is be sincere. All that one has to do is be zealous. It really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're dedicated to what you believe, as long as you're sincere. But here we find very sincere people who are very religious, who are extremely committed to God and lost. And lost. It's not about fervor. It's not about activity. It's not about sincerity. It's about Jesus Christ and knowing that the only way in which a person is acceptable to God is through believing in Jesus Christ. That his death and his resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. There is no other way other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, lastly, why do we need to understand that many Jewish people stood in need of salvation? So that we would understand the meaning and conditions of the salvation message that results in salvation. So number two, what do we need to understand is it's not hard or difficult to be saved. It's not hard or difficult to be saved. That's found in the phrase that salvation is not far off, but rather is close at hand. And we want to unpack that in just a moment. We're going to look at an extended illustration that comes from the Old Testament. And the heart of this illustration is this. One does not have to embark on a difficult spiritual pilgrimage in order to be saved. 
One does not have to embark on a difficult spiritual pilgrimage in order to be saved. In religion, a pilgrimage is a long journey or search of great moral significance. Oftentimes, it's a journey to a sacred place or a shrine. And so in many religions, there is a journey that one must take. In Islam, you might want to journey to Mecca. Uh, there have been periods of time in which people saw that journeying to Jerusalem brought certain benefits and, and merits and spiritual blessings. And it was common to think that in sacrificing, in enduring, in persevering through these religious pilgrimages, that it would result in obtaining some kind of blessing and favor with God. However, this passage teaches us that religious pilgrimages are not what the law requires as far as salvation is concerned. One does not have to embark on a long, arduous journey in order to be saved. Salvation is quite easy. Salvation is at hand. In our text, there are a series of Old Testament allusions that demonstrate this point. And uh, these allusions meant a great deal to these uh, Jewish believers in the New Testament era. Uh, they probably are less meaningful to us as they are not as readily understandable to us. Uh, and so I'm going to go over them quite uh, quickly and get to the, the main point of the allusions or the illustrations. Let me just say here that as we look at Romans 10, 6 and following, there are many Old Testament allusions. If you're using a New American Standard Bible this morning, uh, you have a great advantage in the sense that uh, the New American Standard puts quotations and allusions to Old Testament references in a different font. Uh, they are uh, much uh, uh, bigger, I really shouldn't say different font, but in a different point. They're, they're much bigger uh, capital letters when it refers to um, these Old Testament allusions. So it's easy for us to, to miss them. In the ESV, they are found in quotation marks. And in these verses, you have an allusion found in quotation marks, and then you have the interpretation that's found in parentheses. And so we're going to look through these allusions and their interpretations quickly this morning. The first is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, now here's the quote, here's the Old Testament allusion, do not say in your heart, who will descend into heaven? That's from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. Don't ask yourself, how am I going to, to make a pilgrimage to heaven? The interpretation that's found in the parenthetical statement in verse 6 that is to bring Christ down. Christ came down to us in the incarnation. We did not have to journey to heaven in order to reach him. In John 3.13 it says, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. The point is, we don't have to go to Jesus. Jesus came to us. We don't have to journey to him. He made the journey to us. The second Old Testament allusion is found in 
Romans 10, verse 7. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That's an allusion to Deuteronomy 30, verse 13. The interpretation is found in the parenthetical statement in verse 7. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So Christ was raised for us. We don't have to travel into the lower parts of the earth in order to reach Christ. But Christ was raised for us. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to him. He comes to us. The Old Testament allusion in verse 8. But what does it say? Here's the allusion. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, which is Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. The point is, you do not have to go some great distance to obtain the truth. Rather, the word is near you. The way of salvation is actually in your mouth and in your heart. It's right here, right now, available to each and every one, for it is in your mouth and it's in your heart. The interpretation is found in verse 8, parentheses, that is the word of faith which we preach. You have the word of God declared to you, Paul says. It is this message that I've been preaching to you. That is what you need to do to be saved. Simply believe that which we have declared unto you. Salvation is here, now, and readily available. You don't have to travel anywhere. You don't have to go to any specific spot. You don't have to go through a great process. There are not many steps to enter into. There is not a tremendous rigor that you must undergo. It is simply to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So what do you have to do in order to be saved? The answer comes in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Period. We'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. But what leads up to that? If you look at verse 8, it says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verses 9 and 10 explain verse 8. Verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if, if you mark your Bible, I would encourage you to circle mouth in verse 8 and draw a line to mouth in verse 9. For it is in that sense the word is near you in your mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, salvation comes through our belief that Jesus is Lord. The word confess has a slightly different meaning than what first comes to our mind. I think when we think of confess, we think of coming clean and acknowledging our sinfulness, and to a degree that's a part but really the word confess here, it literally translated is to say the same thing. To say the same thing. 
So a confession of faith is a statement of faith that is believed by many different people. We could refer to our articles of faith as a confession of faith. They are the articles, they are the declaration of truths in the Word of God that we collectively believe as a body of believers in our church. So when Paul says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is to say the same thing. That you are to say what Paul said, namely that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. Verse 8, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. As there is a boiling down of this great truth to its simplest and most basic idea, it is that we are to have faith that Jesus is Lord. That's what we're to believe. That's the bottom line, that Jesus is Lord. It is incredible to me that there is a debate going on in certain circles as to whether or not one needs to believe in a quote-unquote lordship salvation. Meaning, do you need to accept Jesus as Lord or just accept Jesus as Savior? Uh, can you have the forgiveness of sins without any desire to actually live for or commit your life to Jesus Christ? We can look at many passages of Scripture this morning, but one has to go no farther than the passage that we're in this morning. The very basic element is that we understand that Jesus is Lord. But to say that Jesus is Lord is to say a mouthful. There's a lot contained in that simple idea that Jesus is Lord. First is the understanding that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. To be Lord in this context is to be God. Secondly, it is to say that Jesus has supreme authority over all things. Jesus said, all authority is given unto me. It is to say that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. Thus, we yield our complete allegiance to him. We can't say that we believe that Jesus is Lord and then say, but that has nothing to do with my own personal relationship to God. That he rules over all things except for my life. And that somehow I'm uh, detached from his lordship. No, if we say that Jesus is Lord, we are acknowledging his right to rule over us and to live a life of obedience to him. And then to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate manifestation of his lordship. Paul says, we have been saying these things to you. So let's go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. If you would turn back with me there. And we want to unpack that in Romans chapter 1. 
Starting at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this salvation is not new. This is the salvation that's been taught in the Old Testament. Concerning his son, here's the deity of Jesus Christ. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was demonstrated to be the very son of God. By his resurrection, it was demonstrated that what Jesus claimed to be was true. It was a vindication. It was a demonstration that nothing could hold him, that he was Lord over all principalities and powers and might and dominion. Nothing could keep Jesus in the grave. Why? Because he is Lord. Because he's the Son of God. Because salvation comes through him. Notice verse 4. Who is declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is that personal identification. Not only is Jesus Christ the Lord, but Jesus Christ is our Lord. We acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now notice verse 5 speaks about an obedience of faith. An obedience that results from faith. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, it will result in obedience to that lordship. It will result in a changed and transformed life. But salvation is more than just doctrinal agreement. It is more than just words that we utter. Go back to Romans 9 now, picking up at verse 8. Uh, excuse me, Romans 10. Romans 10, picking up at verse 8. Reading at verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, and now notice the words, and in your heart. Just as we looked at mouth in verse 8 and linked it with mouth in verse 9, now if you look at heart in verse 8, you link it with heart in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. The point is that the confession, the statement that Jesus Christ is Lord, must come from the heart, meaning that it must really believe. It's not just the simple saying words. It's, it's not even a simple mental consent that what is said is true, but it's an actual response 
of the heart that in agreement and faith accepts Jesus in his complete lordship, in his deity, in the benefits of his death and resurrection. It is the heart that must give the expression of the faith that is uttered from our, our mouths. In Matthew chapter 12, we have this stinging rebuke. It says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Second Corinthians, Paul says this, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak. The scripture says that out of the heart comes what we talk about. What we believe, what we hold dear is the things that, that we have conversations about. All right? Those people that, that love sports are going to stand in the narthex and talk about the Phillies or the Eagles or some other team. Whatever is really important to you, if it's, if it's finances, if it's the stock market, if whatever it is, okay, somehow it works our way into our conversation. It's a part of the wolf and wolfer of, of who we are. It's where our interests are. It's where our concerns are. It's where our hopes are. It's where our allegiances are. It's where our monies are. It's where our times are. It's where we read and we study about. So if you really believe that Jesus is Lord, you're going to be talking about him. You're going to be speaking about him. You are going to be acknowledging Jesus. So this confession comes from the heart. If you really believe, you cannot keep silence. So the application is that salvation is not difficult. It's easy. It's not somewhere out there. It's not far off. It's not some distance you have to travel. <laughs> It's as close as your own mouth and your own heart. It's right here that all I have to do to be saved is simply believe in everything that the scripture teaches about who Jesus is as Lord, as the Son of God, as the one who died and rose again. Perhaps some people would be more apt to accept the plan of salvation if it were more difficult or exotic. You know, Naaman is an example in the Old Testament of a person who, when brought to the prophet, was turned off because he was expecting the prophet to give him something hard or difficult to do in order to be cleared from his, le his uh, leprosy. You know, some people want to make salvation more difficult. They, they want it to be something that I've got to do that's it's exotic, it's, it's bizarre, it's out there. Well, it's not. It's not exotic, it's not bizarre, and everything that you need to do, God did for you. You don't have to go up to heaven. He came down. 
You don't have to go into the lower parts of the earth. He rose for you. He did it all. It's a matter of believing and accepting our need of that, of that Savior. God has reached down to us. We don't reach up to him. God does not ask the impossible of us, for he did the impossible for us. Again, in John 3, it says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of God. John 6, 38 and following, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I would lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. Salvation is not hard or difficult. It's not far off. It's close as the hand. It's in our mouths and it's in our hearts. So again, lastly, we need to understand the way of salvation is the same for everyone. The way of salvation is the same for everyone. There is no difference in the way that the Jew and the Gentile is saved. Verse 12. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of, of all. That's not just a play on words. That's a very profound, simple statement. The Lord is the Lord of all. The Lord rules over all things. Therefore, everything is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus said, all authority is given unto me. Go ye therefore into all the nations. Go to all peoples. For everyone must acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Without exception. There are no other ways. There are no other religions. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you're in lower Tibet or if you are in Greece or Hungary or you are in the third world country for salvation is not far off. It's not where you go. It's in your heart and it's in your mouth. It's here. It's now. It's available. It is solely in believing that Jesus is Lord. Verse 12. Bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. That everyone, no matter what their ethnic background, no matter, matter what their religiosity is, no matter where they live, no matter how they have lived, no matter what their particular circumstance is, it's a universal truth that there is one way of salvation and everyone who places their faith in that salvation is saved. Which brings us to verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon Jesus as Lord. Notice first, Lord keeps coming up in each one of these verses. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is, everyone who evokes the help 
of God in prayer, trusting in Jesus, will be saved. Be saved. This morning, if you want your sins to be forgiven, if you want to be in a right relationship with God, it's easy. It's easy. In fact, it is so easy that some people are turned off by it. And some people reject it. It's easy. It is simply to believe that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. He did die. He did rise again, conquering all sin, all oppression, everything that would withhold him and keep him in the grave. Everyone needs to cry out to God to be saved. There is universal need and there's a universal solution to that need. And that is that we pray and ask God to save us on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you do that in belief that is true and genuine, you are saved without exception. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men that you must be saved. It's a reality. Jesus is Lord. We are to believe what is true, that Jesus rules over all things. One day, Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth. And when he does, according to Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the same word that's found in our text Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus returns, every knee will bow. Every knee will be in submission. And every knee will say, it is true, you are God. And you rule over all things. And you rule over us. We have the opportunity today before Christ returns, to acknowledge it is true. Jesus is Lord. He is coming back. He has made it possible to be saved through his death and resurrection. And all I need to do is to acknowledge that in sincerity and truth. Jesus indeed is the Son of God. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the way of salvation. The application this morning is as simple as the message. That is, have you ever asked God to save you solely on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection? Are you trusting in him and him alone as the means of your salvation? And have you ever asked God to save you? Have you ever opened your mouth? 
Have you ever cried out to God? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have never prayed and asked God to save you on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, for he is the Son of God, he is the Lord of Lords, then I implore you today, pray to him and ask him to save you. And he will. He will. He has promised to save everyone who calls upon him in truth. The application is equally simple. If you really believe that, if you really believe that Jesus is Lord, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess that, then we need to take that message to people, sincere people, zealous people, religious people, but people who don't know Christ as Savior. For if one doesn't call upon God, believing in Jesus as the sole means of salvation, they're lost. No matter how good, no matter how zealous, no matter how often they pray, no matter how often they read the Bible, it doesn't matter. There is no other way. But trusting in Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for the salvation that is not far off. Lord, we don't have to travel halfway around the world. We don't have to save up huge sums of money to buy our salvation. We don't have to work for years to pay off an indebtedness that finally merits our salvation. Oh God, you have made it easy for us. It is close at hand. It's even in our very hearts and mouths to simply call upon God to save us, believing that Jesus is Lord, ruling over all things, ruling in our hearts and lives, an acknowledgement that we have rejected that authority in the past. We have lived in according to our own desires, our own wills. It was not our desire to glorify you and to praise you, but now that we have seen that Jesus is Lord, we have seen the value of submitting ourselves to Christ. Not simply for salvation, but the wisdom in knowing that he cares for our soul. He provides for our every need that we have this opportunity and joy to be able to call upon the creator of the heavens and the earth to help us and sustain us and to supply for us. So, oh God, help us to take that message to a world that's dying, to a world that does not know. In Jesus, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.